Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs, and I'm so happy to be here with you today. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to invite you to join us for the month of September over on Let's Read the Gospels podcast. I cannot believe we are starting our ninth month of reading the Gospels together. And in September, we are going to read the NIV, but we're going through the Gospels chronologically. So whether you've been listening with us already, or if this is your first month, this is such a fun one to jump in on. I think you're going to love listening and reading through this version in this order. It is so fascinating to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the ways the story happened versus by book. It is awesome. So we start tomorrow. So y'all head on over to Let's Read the Gospels and subscribe wherever you're listening to this. Subscribe to Let's Read the Gospels so you don't miss a thing. And let's start our days in scripture together for the next month. Just agree to 30 days. Just do September. I think you're really going to love it. It might just be the steady grounding that you need in God's word each day in the midst of a busy month. And don't forget, we have a guidebook that goes along with the podcast if you want that and a reading guide because, you know, we jump around a lot in September. And those are both available at AnnieFDowns.com slash Gospels. So speaking of the Gospels, today on the show, I get to talk with Esau McCauley. Esau is an award-winning author, a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, and an associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton. So you know we talked about all things Gospels with him, or at least we got a good taste of what he knows. His latest book, How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South, comes out on September 12th. It is an eye-opening and a profoundly honest story of Esau and his family's experience growing up in the South. I really enjoyed the book and was real honored to get to do this conversation. And we love having gospel people on the show. So we got double down on this episode. So here's my conversation with my friend Esau McCauley. Esau McCauley, welcome to That Sounds Fun. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I mean, what a massive honor. I just feel, I, I tell people seminary professors and prayer people are my Kardashians. Like oh, y'all, okay. they're my Kardashians. It's who I it's who I care the most about. It's who I get the oh. most dumbstruck around. So, oh my goodness, you shouldn't be dumbstruck I'm around t- me. I'm, I'm, I'm do my I'm best. Just, where are you from, Annie? Atlanta, Marietta. So, like, I, I I I live in the Midwest now, and anytime I get on a podcast with a genuine Southern accent, uh-huh. it like warms my soul. <laughs> So like you feel excited, you know? Yes, <laughs> I mean, but I'm like when I return to the South, at least virtually, I feel happy. Yeah, there you go. I mean, because I figure Huntsville and Marietta are probably yeah, about the same yeah. height. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. You just run it straight across. That's yes. right. We're equal amounts of Southern. You and I. <laughs> there we go. There we go. It, so, it, it matches. And it happens. It's really funny because people will respond. They'll probably do it today. People will respond yeah. and say, "When you're on with someone else from the South, you sound different." Yes, I'm. I might. I might. They might get the. They might get the real. Southern Esau Macaulay during this podcast. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> you talk about in your new book, How Far to the Promised Land, you talk about your mom switching yeah. when she yeah. she would have a vernacular with you and with your yeah. family and a yeah. different one if she was talking yes. to someone outside yeah. the home, particularly white people, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> the, I, yes, I call it the professional tone she adopted when yeah. she talks to white people. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's like it's like the business conversation. That's how my mom used to do it. And the, and the silly, th- the interesting thing about it is my sibling, not my siblings, my children say I sound a lot more Southern when when I'm talking to my family. Yeah. And then apparently my accent just manifests itself. Uh-huh. Like 
I returned back to the 1990s when I used to have a much bigger draw. But we lived, we lived because my wife was in the military. So we lived in Japan. Then in my PhD, I um, did it in Scotland. And so just being around losing it, I think I lost some of my Southern accent. I need you to know I used to live in Scotland as well. Do you know that what about part? me? I lived in Edinburgh. Edinburgh is my favorite city. I it's- feel like we're not going to have a podcast. We're just going to like hang out like Southerners. <laughs> Because we've already figured out where we're from That's and we right. connected via region. Sorry. That's right. That's we're right. already off the rails. <laughs> um, okay, but where, did you get to sit under Tom Wright? Was he one of your oh, professors? He was my doctoral supervisor. Dude. Was that just so, a yeah, like, He's unbelievable. Yeah, so sorry. Yeah, I went to St. Andrews to study. In the, yeah. in the UK, you don't take classes. You just study under professors. Uh-huh. So yes, he's my, he, they call him Dr. Father. Oh, wow. Um, and so yes, he, he supervised my PhD. How long were y'all living in St. Andrews? We lived in St. Andrews for three years, and okay. it was great. And, and Edinburgh was actually my favorite city. Yeah. It's just a beautiful city, take, and I love it. I love my train. Cur- I love oh, the train from Edinburgh to St. Andrews. It's, it's just amazing. I even saw the British Open um, in, on the old course at St. Andrews where I was there. Wow. It's amazing. Okay, this is a this is a deep pull, but my favorite uh, rock in the world is when you leave the old course and you go down a little yeah. bit. So if you're at the old course and you go down, there are those big rocks you can stand on. There's one yes. right there that I feel like me and the Lord, like I yes, feel like that's my that's rock it. with the Lord. So I used to walk past that every day. Oh, it's the best. What it's do you miss best. about living in the UK? Actually, one of my favorite things would be to take the train from St. Andrews yeah. to, to Edinburgh just the train rides and the beautiful topography yeah. and the history. Believe it or not, my office was overlooking the ruins of St. Andrew's Cathedral. <gasps> so out of my window, oh. you could see the the ruins of the cathedral, which sounds great, but I will make you, so you don't, you're not too jealous. I'll give you the negative side of that. Is that was also where the tourists would come I was about to say tourists. It's gotta be- <laughs> but it wasn't the tourists. The tourists weren't the problem. There was a, there was a bagpipe guy Oh. who played basically two songs the entire time. Yeah. It was Amazing <laughs> Grace and I think the Scottish National Anthem <laughs> or whatever it was. Those were the big money makers. Uh-huh. And so for, if, if you're walking by the um, cathedral, you say, oh, this is beautiful. It's Amazing Grace. And who could get tired of Amazing Grace? Let me tell you, if you hear it eight hours a day, <laughs> it was mostly during the summer. Once it got cold, they, he stopped doing no. it. But every summer... All, I mean, I like, I get it. Grace is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with. How much do I have to pay you to stop? Yeah. How much can we you get? Come down of every blessing. Can yeah. we get? Can we? Can we just expand the hymn? Yeah. But it was secular. It was such a secular country. Yeah. The amazing grace where they were guaranteed to know it, and whatever yes. the other hymn was, I, I'm, the Scots are going to yell at me. They will say it was the Scottish. <laughs> whatever it was, that was the other hit that he yes. played over and over. Again. Yes. There's that same guy. I, not the same guy, yeah. but the same guy stands on the Royal Mile. Yeah, and he is—you know—he's right there behind that statue every yeah, time, hitting it, hitting yeah. it every time. Yeah, that's exactly right. Oh, I'm, I love that we both got to live there. You know, for me, tell me if this was a similar experience. For me, I felt like my neighbors in the UK were not very different than my neighbors growing up in the South. It's like one oh. family line. Oh no! And I would tell you, like, if you want to talk about, um, like, how do I say this? Well, like, tough old people. Yeah, like you have in the South. Yeah. There'd be like 85-year-old women walking in the uh-huh. rain to church on a rocker. Yes. Not a rocker, a, a, a walker. And don't try, which I would do, to pull over and say, do you want to ride? They're like, why are you, why are you in a car, you lazy American? <laughs> yeah. 
I am, I'm walking in my walker in the rain, laughing at the at the water that's hitting him in the face because <laughs> what do I care? Yeah. And so it, it, in that same kind of like rugged, we've lived here and we're not going anywhere yeah. kind of energy. Like the old ladies in my church growing up had a kinship. Yeah. Um. They, I, I, I'll tell only one Scotland story since you have me going, then I'll stop. There was this older man, I'll never forget. In our church, they would have daily Eucharist. It was an Anglican church, an Episcopalian church in, in Scotland. And they would have daily Eucharist. And this guy came to me and he said to me, he's like, I don't know, a hundred. He's just super yeah, old. Yeah. And he goes, well, I have cancer all over my body. And so it's just too much work for them to fix it. And he says it with this much concern. Yeah. And he goes, I'm going to die in a few months. But what I'm really concerned about is that you make sure the daily communion continues in the church and that someone goes to help my wife, who's like 90 yeah. and who's on a walker to make sure she gets to the congregation on time. So wow. he's ready to die and go to be with Jesus. And his main concern is to make sure that someone helps his wife wow. to still get to church. Like Not every Sunday now. Every day. Every day. Jeez. And I was like, that's devotion. And you imagine, I remember I used to try to preach to those people. And what do you say in a sermon to someone who's 100 years old that's that right. he hasn't already heard? Like, that's he knows right. it. That's right. I feel it's like I'm wasting his time. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to talk, but don't listen. Yeah, don't like, listen. God loves you. God that's loves right. you. Like, Can I ask you what year you were born? Because I think we're the same age. 1979. 80. Oh, look at this. Exactly. We are the same age. I didn't. Yeah. I'll tell you why that blew my mind is as I was reading your book, I thought, how much older must he be than me? That this is what happened to him at school and that this is oh. what happened to him at college and that this is what happened to him in elementary when you called the wrong phone number and the yeah. man said the N-word to you. I thought, gosh, how much older must Esau be than me? And then you say, in 1992, when I was 13, and I was like, oh, oh, I was 13 in yeah. 1992. Your story is me and my neighbors. Yeah. One of the things that um, you can do as a writer, because people, I don't know, people make fun of me or it's my own insecurity. I am like shockingly bad at staying in a genre. <laughs> so re Reading While Black is a work of kind of biblical theology. Yes. Then I did a children's book, Josie Johnson's Hand, the Holy Spirit. Yes. Then, then I did a book about Lent, which is the work of popular theology. That whole series, then, the whole Lent advent yeah. that you're a part of is beautiful. And then there's How Far to the Promised Land, and, and the, which is a, a memoir and a biography. This relates yes. to the question that you're asking me about. It's because I think that sometimes a biblical argument is important. And to understand the theological undergirdings of things that we do is important because it's not just emotions and feelings. It needs to be biblical data. But sometimes those biblical truths can be detached from the lived experiences of people. And we can kind of attribute these things to like, this is a generally true thing that doesn't apply to my life. Mm. And so when I talk about racism, I can just show here is in the Bible where it says racism is bad. Or I can say, here's how this experience impacted me in 1992 when I was 13 years old. Yes. And I think both of those things are important and depending on the truth I want to get across, I use different genres. And so I wish that God would inspire me 
to like stay in one lane. No, so I'm I praying the opposite thing. I don't want you to stay in one lane. I want you to meet us. And all, you are every shelf on a bookstore. And that is yeah. where we need Esau Macaulay's writing is every shelf yeah. of a bookstore. Yeah, I was thinking if someone likes something that I wrote and they want to find the next book, they do got to walk <laughs> exactly right it's not gonna be next to it it's gonna be be in the next section well i i want to tell you how much i enjoyed reading how far to the promised land i just um i was i'm really moved by it and then finding out that we'd have been in the same class at school uh was eye-opening to me so thank you us writers are insecure bunch. Yeah. Um, and and we we feel like when we're writing stuff, we're always on the verge of catastrophe yes. and the people are gonna read it and they're gonna hate it. Yeah. So if nobody else likes it, you liked it. You Eddie got liked one it. So friend I, that feel, liked I, I, it a I, I, lot. I got one friend. That's so right. I'll build from there and get you know, one it. one reader at a time. That's it. In the intro of it, you talk about being the truth teller in your system when you are asked to do your father's eulogy. Yeah. And your sister yeah. says he's the one who'll tell the truth. I yeah. I have had an experience like that where someone said, You're the truth teller in this system. Yeah. And it is a it's a weighty thing. Did it feel yeah. weighty to you then? Does it feel weighty to you now? I mean, you wrote your family history in this book. Yes. Um, <laughs> I wrote a family history. That's, I mean, it. If you That's ask, a good point. If, if, if you ask them, they might tell it differently. That's interesting. Well, I think I interviewed everybody in my family. Um, so I talked to my mom. In, in the acknowledgments at the end of the book, I, I say how I went about about doing the book. And there, there was a sense of weight I want to, I'll, 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 for the person who, they won't have, they couldn't have read it yet. So yes, me and yes. you know what I'm talking about. So the book is framed around, my father passes away in 2017. And my family asked me to do the eulogy. Mm-hmm. But my my father was in and out of our lives when I was a child. And so I didn't know him very well. And so part of preparing the eulogy, if anyone's ever been in pastoral ministry, Whenever you're going to do the eulogy, you sit down with the family and you kind of say, tell me about this person. What did I know? What, you know, what do I need to know to eulogize this person? Well, it's kind of like the work of pastoral ministry, but it's much different when you're doing that for your own father. Right. Because now you're not just looking into his past, you're looking into your past. Ah. And so that process of researching his, his life kind of extended out into becoming a family history that became how far to the promised land. Oh, interesting. So I I didn't realize that, that that, the eulogy is what birthed the book. Yes. And actually the last chapter in the book is the actual eulogy that I gave. Yes, it was beautiful. Oh my Um, gosh, it's beautiful. And so, I mean, and they they made me cut it down. So there, there are parts of it that that aren't in the book. Maybe I will I will make out if, if I don't know how I will do it. Yeah. But maybe somewhere I'll post a full eulogy somewhere. Why did they but, ask um, you to cut it down? I mean, it's just editing, and you know, yeah. it's just like it was long. Like I mean, like it was a it was a black Baptist eulogy. You, you <laughs> preached that thing. It have been like two more chapters. Yeah. But what what I was gonna say though is that when you're doing the eulogy, and this is important as a pastor, and maybe I, I'll say it this way. I felt like it was really important as a pastor anytime I gave a eulogy is not to lie. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes at funerals, people can give false, like they can lie about what it was like to be with. Like, So I try to give, and as a pastor, when I was pastoring, as honest as eulogy as I could. You don't condemn people. It's not like saying like he was, but you you have to talk about the hard and the good or it's, or it's a lie. 
I mean, how many um, times we've we been at funerals where someone said they never said a negative thing about a person? I'm like, uh, listen. like that's not true. Like, you want me to open my text <laughs> yeah. messages? I got receipts. Yeah, yeah so, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not a fan of false nostalgia. Right. And so that came into the responsibility I had to tell my father's story. But the other thing that you want to do if you're a clergy person is to tie that life into the wider purposes of God. Mm-hmm. It's not just an assessment of a life, but to say, what was God up to? Even if it was incomplete in this person's life, what can we learn from their life? And so you have to kind of make, you have to kind of tell the life story. You have to like make sense of it for the congregation and for the family. And the family knows whether or not you told the truth yeah. as they listen to it. That's right. And so I felt that responsibility to tell the truth about my father but then it became about my family. But here's the part where it becomes like, why would you all care about the Macaulay family? What it was, it became, my family was such, it was a, such a quintessential Southern and American experience if you know anything about race in the South. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't just a story about my family. It became a, a story about America. Yeah. And what I was, what, the responsibility that I felt, the real responsibility that I felt was that people who grow up in my neighborhood don't often get a chance to tell our story. Yeah. And I, I had a moment where if I wrote the book well, I could make the world pay attention to the things that we went through. Yeah. And so it was like, we don't get this opportunity very often. This is my one chance to say something true and beautiful and hopefully transformative. And so I can say with, genuine honesty that I've never given more to a book. That this book cost me something to write. I'm sure. Um, it cost me a lot to write. And I felt like I owed my father, my family, and the South something. And sorry, I'm gonna mm. I'm gonna stop rambling, but I'm gonna say one more thing. No, you're important. not rambling. I'm loving this. Yeah. Remember, this I'm a huge fan of this book. So the okay. more you talk about it, <laughs> I feel like I'm getting behind the scenes of a book that I love. Yeah. So the the important part about this too, and this is like, I mean, I wish that I could just like reach out and grab the whole world and make them hear this part of what I want to say. Is that so often people want to compartmentalize who we are as people. And so as an African-American, I could write a race book, right? A book about race in America. Or I could write a book about growing up poor in America, like a poverty book. Or I could write a book about God and how I found God, like kind of a, a um, surprise by joy kind of book. But me, all of those things were happening at the same time. I was experiencing being Black in America and the injustice that sometimes accrued to Black life in America. I was experiencing real poverty. But in the midst of those things, I was trying to find out whether God was there and whether or not he cared. And so it is both a commentary on race in America and a spiritual biography. Yes. And, it, you know, everyone has these um, these books that they read. You know, they read like Surprised by Joy. They read yeah. Thomas Burton's Seven Story Mountain. They read Augustine's Confessions. I'm not saying that I'm Augustine and all of those things. <laughs> but I'm saying, I'm not. I'm saying that like, why can't a, a black boy from Alabama tell a, a, a distinctively black but universal story about finding God. And I was passionate in the writing of that book to keep all of those things. So if you come looking for just a race book, you're going to be disappointed because Jesus keeps showing up. Yeah. (laughs) 
doing stuff, performing miracles and whatnot. But if you want just a book that says, I once was lost, but now I'm found, you're going to have to, 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 to figure out or at least wrestle with some of the religious questions that African-Americans have come from racial trauma. Yes. And I wanted to include all of that in the book. Okay, rant over. No, listen, you just go. I'll be here if you need me, but I would prefer to you just to do what you want. Hey, friends, just interrupting this conversation to share about one of our amazing partners, EarthBreeze. Have you ever wondered why laundry detergent comes in such massive plastic jugs? They're so annoying. Plus, 91% of them end up in landfills and oceans, harming our planet and marine life. I was very sad to learn the dirty truth about recycling. Fortunately, I found a solution, and you're going to love it, too, EarthBreeze. Imagine for a moment something that looks like a dryer sheet, but it isn't. It's a liquidless laundry detergent sheet that dissolves a hundred percent in any wash cycle, hot or cold, no measuring, no mess, no heavy lifting. The packaging is lightweight and biodegradable. I save so much space. I can fit 720 loads of sheets where I used to just fit one 60 load detergent jug, y'all. You can sign up for the subscription, have it delivered right to your door, and you have full control to adjust, pause, or cancel at any time. I am happy to never walk down the plastic-filled laundry aisle again. Most importantly, though, these sheets get your clothes so clean. Earth Breeze is tough on stains, fights odors, and my clothes come out clean every time. I have been in love with these sheets, you guys. Every purchase, Earth Breeze also donates 10 loads of detergent to a charity of your choice. With over 50 million loads having already been donated, that is so cool. Trust me, there is no reason not to switch, you guys. Right now, my friends can subscribe to Earth Breeze and save 40%. So go to earthbreeze.com slash that sounds fun to get started. That's earthbreeze.com slash that sounds fun for 40% off. Earthbreeze.com slash that sounds fun. That link and all the links you could ever hope for are conveniently there in the show notes below for you, or you can find them when we send out Friday's AFD Week in Review email. So just be sure you are signed up for that and you can check all those out. And one more amazing partner I get to tell you about, Thrive Cosmetics. Okay. Whether you've heard about Thrive Cosmetics from me or from a friend or social media, you probably know by now that anyone who uses their products loves them. And that's definitely true for me. Hand to heaven, I forgot to put mascara on this morning and turned around and went home just to put on their liquid lash extension mascara. And that is amazing. But have you tried their Brilliant Eye Brightener? It is a highlighter stick made to brighten and open your eyes, giving you an instant eye lift. Okay, so you just apply it to the inner corner of your eyes to look like you've had plenty of restful sleep, even if maybe last night wasn't the best. And here's what's cool, too. You can use it as an eyeshadow for a perfect daytime glow or use the metallic shades for an easy, smoky eye. We love makeup that can do multiple tricks. Their Brilliant Eye Brightener has 10,000 five-star reviews for a reason. Thrive's helping us stock our makeup bags with incredible clean, skin-loving products that make us feel like a million bucks while also helping us help others. Causes in the name for a reason. As part of their mission, every purchase supports organizations that help communities thrive with partners that help people emerging from homelessness or surviving domestic abuse and recovering from cancer, just to name a few. You have to try Thrive Cosmetics to see for yourself. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order. You guys, get you some makeup. Go to thrivecosmetics.com slash TSF. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash TSF, like that sounds fun, for 20% off your first order. Okay, now back to our conversation with Esau McCauley. 
that is really profound as you're saying that, because when you wrote about why God didn't intervene in slavery in America yeah, and how that yeah. is, can, can you teach me more about that? That that's a, yeah. a, a, a real spiritual pull spot yeah. attention for our black friends. So, so when we think about like Protestantism, like we're all Protestants. And when we think about the motivating question of kind of evangelicalism and Protestantism in general, we think of justification. Yeah. So like this, we're saved by faith apart from what we do. That's what led to the Reformation is why we're all Protestants, right? And so there's a sense in which, because this is a founding part of what the Protestant tradition is, we keep returning to it over and over and over again and having the faith versus work arguments. We're still arguing with the Catholics 500 years later. Right? Right. We just can't let it go. we got to dunk on the Catholics, at least as we think we are. Yeah. We'll, whether or not we're accurate, we'll put that to the side, although in the way we talk about Catholicism today. But what I try to explain to people is that like, if you can say the first issue that created Protestantism is justification, well, then what is at the center of the Black church that we come to again and again and again in America? Like what is our initial kind of impetus or, 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 or organizing principle? Well, it was this reality. The Christianity that was preached to us was preached to us initially by people who said that God wanted us to be enslaved and to be passive and that God's will for us was to accept our place in life. And we had to decide whether or not, when we first became Christian, whether or not Christianity spoke only to our souls or to our souls and our and our physical status as well. And wrestling with how do I become Christian in the land of my oppressors, who also claim to be Christian, is a big issue. And so in the Black community, you have kind of like the Christians who are like, it was God who helped us survive slavery. It was God. And you will see this. You can read the um, the abolitionist literature. They will say it wasn't Abraham Lincoln who, who freed the slaves. It was Jesus who did it. Mm. And there's a claim that's central in the Black community, the Black church, is God was the one who answered our prayers. But there's another side within the Black community that say, if God was good, he would have done so earlier. Wow. Or if Christianity was true, why did the people who claim to be Christian enslave you. And then after they enslaved you, why did they then create Jim Crow laws that separated you? Right. And when you did try to integrate, why did they take water hoses and dogs upon you? And so that question of the problem of evil done by Christians is a, a, a animating principle of Black spirituality. It's not the only thing, right? Sure. We believe that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose from the third day and according to the scriptures. We believe the Bible is the word of God. Like that part is there. But what is kind of more central to the Black Christian tradition that it might be in other traditions is this real question of theodicy. And so that idea is something I spoke about in the book in the context of talking about a difficult situation that I was going through as a child. Mm -hmm. And I talk about, you know, some of the abuses and things that happened to me as a child. And I know when some people read it, they kind of have the same response. Well, if God was good, he wouldn't allow abuse to happen. Mm -hmm. And what I was trying to say is that question of making sense of evil and, and, and a lack of an immediate salvation is something that we Black Christians knew about well. 
it was yeah. really throughout the book and that part when you're even when you're talking about your childhood, you are writing in present tense. Hmm. Will you tell me why you did that? So when you talk about that, that makes so much sense. So that is a present tense thing. But the whole way through, you're in present tense. I, why did I do that? It felt right. Yeah. I think that I wanted to tell the story as it unfolds. So I don't want to give a, I don't want to give away too many, too many tricks and trades. Yes, tricks yes, of yes. trade Because you don't want to ruin it. But I will say this part. The story is told. As I understood it at the time. As it was happening. And so part one, which is called The Making of a Villain, deals with like my childhood as I understood it when it occurred. Yeah. And then part two, which actually deals with my father's history, is kind of how I began to understand my father as an adult, which makes him a more sympathetic figure. So, sorry, this is going to be super... I'll be nerdy for a second. Uh, we, I'm having I'm, a I'm, great I'm gonna let time. You, I'm, I'm going to let you in. Okay. So, when I preached the eulogy, and like I said, the book is, is, is structured around the eulogy. When I preached this actual eulogy in 2017, there were three parts of the eulogy. The villain, the victim, the victor. This is Black churches. So you got to do, you know, phonetics. So, yeah. villain, victim, victor. Got it. And so, I thought of him as a child, as... A villain. And then once I began to understand about his past, I began to see him as a victim in part of his circumstances. And then at the end of his life, there's a victory of sorts. Yeah. And so the book is actually structured, believe it or not, around the three parts of the eulogy. It is. And so the first part where he comes across really, really poorly is how I understood it. So it's in the present tense because I'm telling the story not in the voice of a eight, nine-year-old kid, but from the perspective yes. of an eight and nine-year-old kid. But then, if, if people ever read the book twice, this is going to be, this is so nerdy. But well, I'm true. for sure about to read this book um, twice. <laughs> so in the middle, when you hear his family story, yes. and we can't tell them what occurs, that makes the entire part one read differently. And then you begin right. to understand part three. And so it's in present tense because it's a it's a cute book. And not cute book is the wrong word. Sometimes as writers, you want to do cute stuff. Easter eggy. And it, it was it's an Easter eggy book. Yeah. And so that's the reason it's structured that way. That is so cool. And I said wow. it without giving away stuff. There's a lot of things that happen in the book that are important to me. And I think it's important to anyone who has a difficult childhood. Yeah. I did not have a difficult childhood. And I found myself reading it and thinking, my friends who grew up like this need to read this. And my friends who grew up like me need to read this. Because I sat next to you in school. Yeah. Right? There's this line in the book where I said that I came to school the next day and I cracked jokes in the back of class. Because I was too hyped up on adrenaline to focus. Yes. And that day, the teacher probably got on to me for like being disruptive in class. And the teacher couldn't know. There's this picture. Uh, I wish that if they do a different edition, maybe I'll go back and put the pictures in. But after I finished writing the book, and once they buy it, they'll understand what I mean. There's this picture of me on a tricycle. Uh-huh. And I have like kind of like the, like the early 80s outfit. And I just looked so happy in the picture. My mom sent it to me. 
And I said, if someone had seen that kid on a tricycle, they would have thought that's just the most carefree kid in the world. Yeah. But what's actually going on was radically different. And it's revealed to me, and I, I, I wanted to like, I wanted to, I've been holding on to it. I wanted to post it on Instagram and say, this is the kid that you read about in chapter one. Yeah. Just to give us an understanding of what the life actually is like for kids who, who sometimes have a whole world of things going on around them and we can't know. Yeah. And it's probably why I try to be as patient and forgiving with people as I possibly can, because I don't know what they're going through. Right. I mean, I would love if you did like a page on your website or if you did an Instagram where you showed us pictures yeah. of Sophia. I mean, I, I want to see everybody. Yes. So there's a picture of the house. The, my, my um, There's a house that's central to the book called The Big House. It's yeah. um, Sophia's house. Sophia's my great-grandmother. And my my sister, during the writing of the book, went back. And it's, the, the land is, is overgrown. It's been basically effectively abandoned. And she had to like climb over stuff and uh-uh. she kind of goes up there. My sister, she's, she's a wonderful person, but she has like, she has no sense of danger. <laughs> like the house is like, the house is like it was going to collapse on itself. And there's like holes in the floor. Oh my gosh. And she goes inside of this house. The house was built like a hundred years ago. Yes. It's been abandoned for 50 years. And she goes into this house and she like gets a pot that was like, I think maybe Sophia's spot. She found it because they just, they just, after everyone dies, just kind of left the property. Wow. And she goes into the house. I'm like, how did you not get rabies in there? She right. goes in the house and actually rescues some items. And it's just like, you know, the, in, in my wilder dreams, I kind of went and looked it up who owns the property. Yeah. And I've been trying to get in touch with the people to see if they would sell it because it's just abandoned land. Yeah. Sometimes you just want to end the story by going back and purchasing the land that your family lost. Yes. I would love to somehow see all those pictures. If you ever decide to share all those on socials, once the book is out, you can kind of give us. I can can send it to you. I just would love, I would love to put faces and see all of that. One of the things when you talk about in the book, when you talk about poverty, I found this, I'm, if, if you wrote about this, I missed it. So I hope I'm asking a question that doesn't spoil anything. When you write about poverty and eating cereal, that yeah. is grocery store brand off Frosted brand Flakes, yeah. off-brand cereal, that yeah. dissolve. And then you go to college yeah. that day. You eat the cereal, and then yeah. you pack up and yeah. go to college. Yeah. Was there a was there a rescue for you in being able to eat at college? Uh, it's funny because um, there's, this, uh, th- there's this joke in football. Like, I was a football player. Yeah. And so when you go to college and you play football and you go during this, – this is Tennessee in the summer, so yeah. it's hot. And they have these things called two-a-days. I don't oh, know if yeah. you're a Southerner. So you practice in the morning, afternoon, and it's 100 degrees outside. Yep. And you just, like, lose a ton of weight because you're just sweating all of the time. Yep. They said I was one of the few people who gained weight during two-a-days because <laughs> you could just go to the cafeteria and eat as much as you want. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah. So, yes, anyone who's ever been to the University of the South where I went to college, it was also, also known as Swanee, it's modeled after in its architecture kind of British universities. It wanted to be kind of an Oxford in the South, the Oxford or Cambridge. And so you go from like inner city, Huntsville, Alabama, to basically a a Southern Oxford or Cambridge with like sandstone and like yeah. these buildings and like this, everything's brand new and pristine. The cafeteria is amazing. And then you go from an, like an all black neighborhood 
to an all-white school. And so there there was a tremendous culture shock from my childhood up through when I entered into college. Yeah, I just, I found myself thinking about I used to teach elementary school in some low income areas in Georgia. Yeah. And I was thinking about them going to college. And when they, I mean, you said this was true of your story too, of that going to school meant you got breakfast and lunch. Yeah. But it's also like, I guess the hard part for people who don't grow up like that, it's not like you go to college and it feels like, oh, I made it. Because these things are so normal to people, you have this sense of, do I belong here? And so the comfort is almost disorienting because they don't, people see it as normal. There's a part in the book that I will recount where I talked about the first time I was hanging out with people before spring break. Uh-huh. Yes. And they started talking about where are we going to go for spring break? And they said, we're going to go to our, our family's vacation home. And we're going to go to this cab. We're going to go to France. I'd never been anywhere. I'm from Huntsville. The furthest we ever went was Atlanta. That yeah. was like our big trip was Six Flags over Georgia. Oh, listen, did you ever go to Whitewater too? <laughs> we no, we went. We went to um, believe it or not. I don't think this exists anymore. Opryland when it was an actual theme park. It it's is not, not a theme, a theme park. park, park that's where I live now. Yes. I live in Nashville, and then okay, Opryland we, does not exist anymore. Okay, we went to Opryland. Yeah. Opryland was a theme park, and that was yeah. our that was our that was our go to trip. We did that like two or three times. Yeah. Once we had enough money to make it all the way to Atlanta. Yeah. And so, like, but when I'm here, they're like, "Oh, we're gonna go to France. We're gonna go to here." And I was just like, "I'm just gonna go home." Yeah. And the other thing I talked about is like, so when you don't have a lot of money, your clothes become really important. So whatever you have growing up, it's iron, it's starched. You kind of make sure that you're clean. You put together. It was like you had to look like you had something even if you didn't. And one of the strange things that I learned about money is that when you have a lot of money, you can actually not care about how you look. And so they'd come in and they'd have like, um, oh, this is my, uh, I don't know, it'd be like a $400 shirt that looked old, uh-huh. right? Like the purpose of it was to look worn. Or they'd actually say, we're going to go to... Goodwill, goodwill and buy Goodwill yeah. and, and and they'd have like a Goodwill outfit on but then they go by and choice. get in a Land Rover <laughs> by choice because and then they go get in a Land Rover I was like well hold on how are you a Goodwill and a Land Rover that I, and so it's just like the rules yeah the rules and the rhythms are so different that it's hard to understand how you're supposed to function in that space wow and so I talk about that in the book. And the University of the South is a particularly complicated place because it was it was like founded by the, the parts of the Confederacy to show that you could have like a leading um, academic institution in the Confederacy. There was, a, there was a house on campus that burned down. It was called the Rebel's Rest. Oh, Because that's where the actual rebels went, right? And so like when, when I would go into fraternity houses... And I talked, they were, they were like actual Confederate, like there's a huge Confederate flag. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book, Yeah, a huge Confederate flag. And so that was just, imagine for a second, I'm sorry, go from an all black neighborhood to you're now in this place where the buildings named after the Confederate soldiers, there's the rebels rest, there's the flag. And it's just like, this is a lot different. Right. And there's so much money. So much money. They got me to go, and I don't want to talk too much about college. They got me to go because they recruited, I never forget it, because I think it was like $50,000 a year yeah. with three women born in tuition. And he said, 
if you come here, when you graduate, your brain will be worth almost a quarter of a million dollars. A quarter of a million dollars. I read that. Yeah. And I was like, wow. But then when I got there, I realized there's people who can pay a quarter of a million dollars to go to college. <laughs> that's right. You're like, wait, y'all are all paying for your you, brain. Y'all, pay, y'all paying yeah. for this? Yeah, that's right. And, <laughs> and they're paying for it. And they're not taking so like, it serious. And they're not taking it serious. Yeah, they're like, oh, it'll be fine. Mom will take care of me. I say, like, no, no, no. I need to go here, get these grades, and get a job. Because if not, I go back into poverty. Yeah. They were like, oh, I'll just work for mom or dad. They kind of, they kind of fluff off the first three or four years, three years. They say, oh, I'll get serious when I become a senior. Then I'll get an internship and then life will be fine. And so it's just like that. I'd never been around them as opulence in my life. Yeah. And it was just all disorienting. Hey, friends, just interrupting this conversation one more time to share about another amazing partner, Relief Band. Nausea is the worst feeling ever, if you ask me. So whether you're prone to motion sickness, fighting morning sickness, get nauseous from a migraine, or are going through chemo, Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting. And you can even use your HSA and FSA dollars to get a Relief Band. Let's go. And Relief Bands really work. If you need everyday nausea relief or just an occasional cure from nausea because you keep looking at your phone while you're in the back of an Uber or you're headed on a cruise. Their patented technology makes feeling sick a thing you don't have to deal with. You can skip the nausea pills that make you groggy and exhausted because Relief Band is legitimately a band you wear on your wrist to give you relief from nausea so your trip isn't ruined and neither is your day. Plus you get to change the intensity depending on how you're feeling to make it stronger or weaker. I think that is brilliant. So if you want the band that actually works at relieving your nausea check out Relief Band. Right now, my friends get an exclusive offer just for our friends here at That Sounds Fun. If you go to reliefband.com and use the promo code That Sounds Fun, you'll get 20% off plus free shipping. So head to R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com and use the promo code That Sounds Fun and you get 20% off plus free shipping. And one last incredible partner to tell you about. Oh man, I'm so happy to tell you about this. Hatch. Y'all know, listen, if you are looking for the best alarm clock out there, the Hatch Restore 2 is where it's at. You may remember Eddie and I talking about Hatch on Annie and Eddie Keep Talking, and I am so excited that they're partnering with us. That sounds fun. Their Restore 2 is not only so gentle at waking you up with its sunrise alarm, but it has multiple options to help you fall asleep and stay asleep. It has white noise, brown noise, pink noise, who knew noise came in colors, and other nature sounds to help you sleep soundly without waking up. You can even set it to your own routine so it's ready to go each night and you can customize your experience with their free app plus it is beautifully designed so it's a great addition to your bedside table one way I try to keep good social media and scrolling boundaries at night is by using the Hatch Restore 2 as my primary alarm clock so I can keep my phone away from my bed. If I leave scrolling out of my bedtime and first thing in the morning routine, I am quite the healthier Annie. Good rest allows you to be the best version of yourself, which is why the Hatch Restore 2 was engineered to help you form healthy sleeping habits for life. Your Hatch teaches your body when it is time to sleep and when it's time to rise with light and sound cues. I have mine perfectly timed. It makes me so happy. It coaches you through meditations and mindfulness exercises that transform the time before and after sleep into restful rituals. So great sleep cannot be forced, I know, but it can be learned and the Hatch Restore 2 is here to help us. Right now, Hatch is offering our friends $20 off your purchase of a Hatch Restore 2 and free shipping. Just go to hatch.com. 
co slash that sounds fun. Sleep deeply, wake gently with the restore to go to hatch.co slash that sounds fun and get $20 off and free shipping. That's hatch.co slash that sounds fun. And now back to finish up our conversation with Esau. That sounds fun. In the book, you talk about that in in your community growing up, you either became a preacher or a fo- yeah. or an athlete or a drug yeah. dealer. Yeah. Those are three choices. So you knew going to school, you had you had yeah. option. Yeah. You, did you yeah. think when you were going into school, okay, so I've got to go after this athlete role or I got to be a preacher or my other option yeah. is going back and being with my cousins? So when you talk about that, and, and this is kind of like, they call it plausibility structures. So I didn't consciously think, I don't want to be a a preacher, therefore I'll do athletics. It's like, what could you see Uh, when you're in school? So who did you see successful? Like, I didn't live near a doctor. I didn't live near a lawyer. mm -hmm. Well, I didn't know them. They were. They never told me that's what they did. And so when I imagine success, how could I see it? Yeah. Well, the only people who I know who I knew who really had a bunch of college degrees were just my teachers in high school. Right, right. And so, like, those are the ones. And so, when I imagined my future, I never thought, oh, I'm going to go and get an academic scholarship and go and be a doctor because I didn't know anybody who had done that. Yeah. I knew tons of people who were really good at athletics who then went to college. Yeah. And so, it's about what you can imagine. One of the interesting things about, like, I have um, four kids now. Yeah. And like none of them currently think they're going to get an athletic scholarship. It's not that they're good athletes. It's not that they're bad athletes. That's just not what they think. They think I'll get good grades and I'll go to college like mom and dad did. Yeah. But like my family hadn't, uh, we're the first generation, me and my sisters and brothers are the first generation of people to go. And so when you think about what is imaginable, and and, and this, this is one of the things that, that I, try to, I try to talk about in the book. The biggest predictor still of whether or not you get a college education is the education of your parents. Wow. Well, my granddad went to segregated schools. Right. And Sophia did never know, learn to read. Yeah, never learned to read. Right. And so my mother, she was raised by someone for whom college was not imaginable. Right. And she started off at segregated schools. Mm-hmm. And she, and, and this is the, I'm going to ramble on for a second, but this is important. It. So when you are when you read about stuff in history books, we kind of neatly divide history. In other words, we kind of say Brown versus Board of Education happened, then they integrated the schools, and then racism kind of went away. But my mom is in the 70s going to an integrated school, and she's saying that some of the teachers don't really want to teach the black students. Mm. Or when she's trying to join the honor societies, they won't let her in. And so it's not like integration happens and equality just breaks out. And so you're now coming to me, the first generation in my family that was raised by someone. No, actually, this is true. I will say this, this sentence. I am the first generation in my family that went to integrated schools from beginning to end. Mm. My mom didn't. My granddad didn't. Mm -hmm. So my children are the first ones in our family. My, my son, who's 15 years old, my youngest daughter is, she just had a birthday. She's seven. I got it right. She's seven. It's the first generation in our family who were raised by parents who had equal access to education. Right. Me. Right. And so when you say like, why did you try sports? It's because it was what was imaginable. Right. 
And the people for whom sports wasn't viable, they tended to, you know, we did, yeah, they tended towards other ways of kind of making it. But for me, sports is what I thought of as what I could do. But it, it wasn't like a crazy take yeah. given the context no. out, out of which we came. Yeah, not at all. I was really interested in, I mean, when you, you get injured, people can read about this. You get a football injury in high school that looks like it's going to end. And then you're yeah. writing to me in, in first person, I mean, in, in present tense, and I'm like, page yeah. turner. I'm like, his leg is dangling, his leg is dangling. <laughs> Somebody help. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. This will be the last question because I just want people to, about this, because I just want people to read the book. Will you talk a little bit about choosing the name Esau for yourself. Oh, no. That, that's the one part that I will not give away really? until you read it. That's okay. the one secret Fair. I want to hold on to. Fair. So here's the, here's the funny thing. And I, everybody, this is the question I have been asked my entire life. Really? Why do you have the name Esau? It's a weird name. Like, okay, then, Annie, I'm going to ask you a question. You've gone to a lot of churches in your lifetime, right? Never met one. Never met, Never met one. Never met one. You've spoken at conferences. Jacob's You've seen for pastors. days. Jacob's for days. Jacob's for days. <laughs> no, like, my, you could you could pile Jacobs to the sky. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now it is the case that Esau is more common in South American and Spanish speaking countries, but we'll leave that to the side. But like English speaking countries, yeah, almost never heard of. And there is a story about how I got my name. Yes. that was really com- it's, it's, it's a long and convoluted story. And I used to tell people all of the time, if we become friends, then I'll tell you the Esau story. Wow. And it was, and I always knew that one day I was going to write it um, in a book, but I'm glad that I waited until I wrote it when I did, because in some ways it ties up the whole- It does. It ties up the whole book. And so it was probably, this is the other part, today- Today, as of recording, won't be live whenever they hear it. Is I just finished doing the audiobook. Yeah. And the last chapter that I read right before I did this podcast was Fathers of Sons Revisited yeah. and the Eulogy. So yeah. I just read it. Wow. And finally making peace with my father and our shared name is kind of like it's it's what the book is about. Yeah. It's about reconciling our past to our present and finding something redemptive in it. And so I think I think it's literally the best chapter of anything I've ever written. It is gorgeous. And so hopefully gorgeous. hopefully people will like it. But I but I will say I give the definitive defense of Esau you do. as a character. You do. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna swing the tide of history. So does that say mean that, everybody who gets yeah. to page one ninety seven you call a friend now? Because yes, only if you, friends. If, if, if only <laughs> friends. If you get well, the other this is the other part. This I, I talked to my wife about this because the other chapter that. Um, only friends normally get is the chapter fools fall in love. It's the story of how me and my oh, wife met. Yeah. And so now I don't know what we're going to talk about when we meet people now. It's like, <laughs> oh, we already, we are, well, <laughs> we already know everything. That's right. You'll just get to listen more. You'll be like, y'all read that chapter now. You tell me. You read that chapter. You tell, you tell me. me what you yeah. thought about. It. Well, I'm so thrilled that this book exists. I think people are really going to love it. Esau, can we talk for just a minute about the gospels? Uh, you, listen, <laughs> The answer to the, I, I think literally they would revoke my PhD if I ever said no to that question. 
no, we can't talk about the Gospels <laughs> or Jesus. You may not, you may not remember this, but I'm a New Testament professor. So, like, I'm like, if you just find me on the street to say Esau, can we talk about the Gospels? I guess I, you're I, in. I say yes. You're in. I'm in. I'm done. I'm ready. Okay. So I would love. And okay. We talked about before you coming back and just doing a whole conversation, but yes, because our so many of our friends are listening to Let's Read the Gospels. Will you rank? Yeah. The four gospels yes. for me. So we do this every semester. And <gasps> when I really? teach at Wheaton, and so I always have my students do it. And the students get really nervous because I'm like, I'm not saying that like the fourth linked one is like not inspired by God. <laughs> so they kind of the students are kind of nervous, like, oh, I love them all the same. And I say, that's not true. <laughs> I shouldn't say this part. I say, and your parents don't love you all yes, the same way. Right. They have a favorite. They just don't tell you. <laughs> they just all, they're all traumatized. Yeah. But anyways, I say to them, like, everyone has a book that they're drawn to. Yes. And it means something to them. And it doesn't mean to disrespect the other ones. So with the caveat that we love all four of the Gospels, the definitive best Gospel ever written was Luke. Luke was so deep in his, like, Gospel bag. And it can't be disputed. Yeah. Why do I love Luke? It has such an Old Testament saturation with the allusions to scriptures. And it's kind of like, I call it, like Matthew does a really good job of quoting the Old Testament. Yeah. Luke kind of evokes the Old Testament. You kind of feel like oh, it's an beautiful. Old Testament story. Yeah. You know, because like I tell them it's God playing the hits. In Luke, God does the kind of things that God always does. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, miraculous birth been there you know long you know un- unable to have birth you know so he kind of does his he he, he plays to hit so luke is number one and and, and, and there, there's a strong emphasis on women can i tell you the cool part i'll tell you one cool part about women yeah and luke and luke acts it's like the best in my opinion kind of prequel so anyone who's ever read luke you're gonna make me go over but I'm if so anyone's happy. read luke anyone who's read luke knows that at the beginning of the story they have simeon yeah. He takes baby Jesus and he puts him up and he makes this proclamation. And then Luke says, there's another woman there who's named Anna. Yeah. And she begins to prophesy about Jesus. And you kind of go, that's an interesting little story. And you kind of put it to the side. And then you fast forward all the way to the beginning of part two. Uh-huh. When Pentecost comes. And they say. What are you about to do? That they were all in the upper room. Uh-huh. The twelve. And the women, they make a point of saying the women are there. And then the Holy Spirit comes down upon everyone in the room and they all go out and preach the gospel. So you have bookended in Luke and at the beginning of Acts, beginning of Jesus's life, a man and a woman both proclaim Jesus is the Messiah. At Pentecost, the women and the men are both preaching the gospel. And in case you missed the point, they asked Peter, what's going on, Peter? He says, as it says in the scriptures, in the last days I'll pour my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Dude. So he, 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 Luke shows you that the church finds itself when men and women are together proclaiming the good news of who Jesus is. So like Luke does that kind of stuff. So you can't argue with Luke. He's just, he's the boss in his own category. Agreed. Which is why my son is named Luke. Oh, okay. Uh, there we go. Now, the second gospel, close second, is John. I'll be quicker on John. John is, he is such a theological genius. Because he manages to say things that are deeply biblical in the sense that there's links to Old Testament, the bread of life, the water, the light of the world. They're all Old Testament images, but they're all deeply human. Yeah. Like we know what it means to say that God is bread, God is water, 
God is light. And like, and God is the word. And those things are also common concepts in the Greco-Roman world. Yeah. So he uses one image. He uses the images that are deeply biblical, deeply human, and to resonate with the culture. He's like the he's the paradigmatic example of cultural engagement. Yeah. Mark, we're gonna put Mark third today. Okay. I'm gonna reorder. Okay. We're gonna, we're gonna bump Mark up to third. Because and I tell students, because like what the gospels do is they give you a toolkit. And Mark crafts a narrative with a kind of crescendo. Mm-hmm. The first half is who is this character? And it's like, it rises to this place of confession. And we finally figure out who Jesus... Mark does such a good job that everyone thinks this is the, this is the plot of the Gospels, because this is the plot. Who is he? And then he's like, it's Jesus. He's the Messiah. And the moment you think that you understand him, you don't. Hmm. The Son of Man must suffer many things and could be crucified. Right. And then the second half deals with, we thought that we understood who he was, but we really didn't. But the thing that we wanted wasn't what we needed. What we needed is what we saw at the end of the story. Wow. And I want to say this one thing about the resurrection story. Now, I have to leave Matthew and to say Matthew's fourth. And, but I'm going to say this about the, the Markin story. The Markin story where the women come to the empty tomb mm-hmm. and the original indigo Mark says they fled because they were, they were terrified. Yes. And everybody kind of freaks out about that. And I say, well, well, first of all, we know that the women eventually tell people because Mark is recounting their narrative. Mm-hmm. So they eventually pull themselves together and they go proclaim the good news. What I love about that ending of Mark is there's something about the resurrection. And we, we're so used to it that we don't understand it. But there's something deeply unsettling about the resurrection. Yeah, yeah right. And what I mean by that, it's one thing to live in a world where people die and they stay dead. And we kind of understand disappointment. But 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 a world in which the, the power of God is actually unveiled is terrifying. Mm-hmm. You ever been in church? Maybe you don't remember. I don't know if you converted as an adult or not. Or, no, or you, kid. You remember it? Kid. Okay, kid. Even when you're a kid, right? You remember when you're sitting in the congregation and you're listening to the sermon and you start to go, oh, no, this might be true? Yeah. The first thing that you feel when you hear the gospel, it's not joy, it is terror. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh no, if it is true, everything has to change. Yes. Which is the reason why when you say, we, I'm from the Baptist church, come on down. Most people don't want to get out of the seat. Yeah. Because they know the implications of what it means. Yes. And so that fear that the women have when they hear about the resurrection is that fear. I tell people, everybody wants to believe in God, but they don't want God in their business, right? You want to just believe that God exists and have it as this comfortable idea that floats in the back of your head. But Mark ends at that moment of terror when you go, oh no, God is real. He has power over death. My entire world has been flipped upside down. Yes. And so Mark wins on just the, the glory of his climax and his narrative construction. Matthew, you're great, but I've already run, run way past um, that sounds fun. And no. you got to invite me back. So you can't ask me to talk about four Gospels in 10 minutes as a New Testament I know, professor. I know. But, 
Matthew, you're great. You do a good job. I'm happy that you exist. Way to start off the canon of the New Testament. But you don't get any any more love. No prep today. In this, in this podcast. Well, listen, I, here's what I want you to know is that when I consider seminaries, getting to okay. sit under your teaching is one of the reasons Wheaton's in the running. Oh, you know, this, don't, 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 don't have me recruiting now. And I'm I'll telling do the whole you. pitch. Because there, there are tons of great professors here who, who love the scriptures and who love pouring in the students. So we hope well, that some of y'all make your way to Wheaton at yeah. some point. We'd yeah, love to have when I, I have my pros and cons list, and you are one of the reasons Wheaton stays so high on my okay. options is okay, getting then. to learn from you. Um, send, send me an email. I'll, I'll, I'll see what I, we, we can negotiate. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, well, listen, we uh, we will have you back to go real hard on the Gospels because okay, yes. I, we love talking about it. But thank you so much for everything you taught us about how far to the promised land. I cannot wait for people to get to read this, Esau. It's just oh, thank so you. important. It's so important. It's such an important and accessible read. So many of the important reads are not accessible for me. <laughs> Oh, thank but you. you made it it, it, that was that was something that was something I really wanted to do. There's yes. um, it was it, I wanted to tell a story, not bury people under under Bible passages, yeah. which I could do if you asked me to. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let me tell you the last question we always ask. Okay. Is because the show is called That Sounds Fun. Tell me what sounds fun to you. Oh man, what sounds fun to me right now? What sounds fun to me right now would be taking my dog on a walk. Okay. Um. So like after a long day of writing and researching. We have a, a, a King Charles Cavalier. Oh yeah. Called Scotty. And me and my <laughs> wife like to take him around the block. And it's a good way to catch it's a great it's a great um way to kind of catch up. Me and my wife used to take the, the dog on a walk in the afternoon. And just catch up and connect on our day, yeah. see what she's been up to, what I've been up to, and kind of take a deep breath. So I'm looking forward to that. And maybe reading a book. And maybe having the book that I've written launched yeah. um, and, and have a little bit, a little bit of free time would sound fun yeah. too. Oh man. I cannot wait to listen to the audiobook too. If it's you reading it. I read it. Oh, oh yes. Like chapter 12 and yeah. chapter 10. Yeah. I was in my feelings when I read oh, those two. I believe it. I believe it. Um, thank you for making time for this and for coming on the show. I really appreciate Thanks for having it. Me. Oh, so great. Oh, you guys, isn't he awesome? He's so brilliant. I cannot wait to have him back to do a deeper dive on the Gospels. Like, how lucky are we to have friends that can talk about the Gospels like this? Make sure you also grab a copy of his new book, How Far to the Promised Land. I really enjoyed reading it. I mean, it's a beautiful memoir that I think y'all are gonna really be inspired by and learn a lot from. And be sure to follow him on social media and thank him so much for being on the show. Y'all are always so generous to our guests. Thank you for that. If you need anything else to read, you know I'm embarrassingly easy to find. Annie F. Downs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places you may need me. That is how you can find me. And don't forget, you can find the That Sounds Fun podcast for extra goodies after every show on Instagram at That Sounds Fun Podcast. All right, I think that's it for me today, friends. Go out or stay home and do something that sounds fun to you, and I will do the same. Today, what sounds fun to me, y'all, listen, when I was out for a week, I really got into All Creatures Great and Small on PBS, and I've got two episodes left. So what sounds fun to me is finishing season three of All Creatures Great and Small. If y'all have watched this, we have to talk about it, okay? Y'all have a great day, and we will actually see you back here tomorrow. You know I love a bonus Friday episode with our friend Cody Carnes. Yes, you are going to love it. Okay, we'll see y'all tomorrow.